Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Well, the Trump death toll stands at 801,326 dead Americans. Many could have been avoided had Donald Trump, you know, done any basic science stuff and, and like, like many other countries did. We've got a lot in our program today. Revealed the racist plot to tear America apart. We'll get to that in a minute. The last thing that should ever happen in America, frankly, is that a political party would choose to use racial or religious hatred as a primary tool to win elections, inching America closer to bloodshed. But that's what's going on. Also in this hour, I want to get into how will you handle another lockdown? We've got a, just an absolutely shocking comment from the CEO of Moderna to the Financial Times this morning. I'll tell you about that. And Dean Obadala is going to be with us, uh, my colleague on SiriusXM here on uh, SiriusXM, the Progress Channel on SiriusXM. And uh, he's written a brilliant piece for MSNBC about the GOP's long embrace of anti-Muslim hate, which is sort of the bookend to my opening piece on basically anti-black or let's say generally more racist hate that the Republican Party has been embracing since 1964. And you have to ask the question, you know, what rational country would literally throw away, or I guess metaphorically, throw away the genius of their children just because of their skin color. What rational country does that? What politician who loves their country would knowingly promote racial and religious hatred? And yet this is the insanity into which the Republican Party has descended. Uh, The the latest example is Lauren Boebert calling uh, Ilhan Omar a terrorist, and then calling up, refusing to apologize and demanding that Ilhan Omar go before the American people and apologize for something. You know, for America's entire history, our politics have turned on issues of race. This goes, this goes back to literally the founding of our republic. And there have always been politicians who have used race as a, basically a political weapon. And what I find fascinating right now is in our mainstream media, open today's paper, Washington Post, New York Times, you know, whatever it may be, and you will find lots of articles about how, well, you know, look at this, through the gerrymandering, the Republicans uh, no longer even have an answer to their voters. They're, you know, we're going to see Republicans disproportionately take control of North Carolina and Texas and Georgia and Michigan and Wisconsin and blah, blah, blah. It's all this horse race stuff and what that's going to mean for Republican politicians, but nobody is talking about why Republicans are doing what they're doing. Why? I mean, there's an almost total lack of issue-based analysis. And yet, the last time white people in America, the, you know, which is the majority of Americans, I think we're down to around 70% now, but the last time white people in America voted more than 50% for a Democrat for president was 1964, Lyndon Johnson. But the Democrats are clear about issues. I mean, you know, they're working to expand Medicare for all seniors, uh, you know, dental, vision, and hearing. They want to expand Medicaid for all 
low-income working people. And the word all is the important one here. Unemployment insurance to save all families when the economy hiccups. A cleaner environment for everybody. Good-paying union jobs for all workers. A $15 minimum wage for all working people. Free or low-cost college and trade school for everybody. Free universal pre-K for all children. Paid sick leave and family leave for all workers. Less expensive prescription drugs for everyone. Rebuilding our nation's infrastructure so we can all use it. Now, the Republicans have literally opposed every single one of those things that I just mentioned. The one small exception to that would be the so-called bipartisan infrastructure bill, which has several hundred billion dollars of corporate subsidies in it, which was the price that Republicans demanded to have a handful of them sign off on it. But what are Republicans promising their mostly white voters? This is what they're running on. They're going to stop teaching the history of black and native people in schools. They're going to build a wall on our southern border to stop brown people from entering. They want to change voting laws to cut back on hours and locations, voting locations in black neighborhoods, making for multi-hour waits to vote. They want to push school choice so white families can send their kids to all white schools. They want to put in more tax cuts for the 99% white billionaires and the 90.1% white male-run giant corporations. They want to defend white supremacy militias, or at least promise to ignore their threats and crimes. They want to loosen gun laws so, so we'll have more and deadlier weapons of war on our streets. They want to reduce criminal penalties for injuring or killing protesters with cars. They want to, they want to privatize Social Security and Medicare so their bankster donors can scam, can scam us and suck retirees dry. And they attack any programs that push America toward racial equality of opportunity, income, or wealth as so-called anti-white discrimination. This is the Republican Party's agenda. This is what they are selling America. I mean, in that, you find the answer to the question, why are Republicans choosing the path they're on? Well, because they believe pandering to racists and inflaming racism, homophobia, religious intolerance will win them elections. This started in a big way for the GOP in 1968 with Richard Nixon's Southern strategy, as you well know. And they've now branded the Republican Party with things that, frankly, used to, used to be Democratic brands prior to 68. You know, the blue collar worker, the rural hunter, the country music crowd, NASCAR, wrestling fans. I was a country Western DJ in the late 60s. I think it was 1967, 68. It must, have been, it must have been 67. I was 16. And Democrats loved country western music. Republicans not so much, because back then the Republicans were kind of the party of the wealthy. They were the the party of the of the you know kind of the Main Street Republicans. You know the the the, the small businesses, but that was that was the Republican brand. But now they've appropriated the whole thing. None of those things really should be political, though. You know this, this is just America. Millions of Democrats like country music and believe guns and think we can have a multiracial society, a multi-ethnic, a multi-religious society. And in fact, it'll make us stronger. I mean, what rational country, after all, would intentionally block or throw away the talent and genius of an entire generation of young people who could change the world for the better just because of their skin pigment? Citibank published a report in 2020. This was last year. You know, the big bank, Citibank. And in that report, they looked at the period, the last 10 years, 2000, uh, or 20 years, 2000 through 2020. And they showed that all of America lost $16 trillion in gross domestic product because of discriminatory lending practices, kneecapping entrepreneurs in black neighborhoods, that was about 13 trillion. Discriminatory hiring and other business practices cut black wages by 2.7 trillion. And hundreds of billions of dollars were lost to housing and education discrimination. This is really one of the biggest challenges America has faced since the Civil War, is this issue of, not just the issue of race, but the issue of one of our two major political parties wrapping themselves in racism and Islamophobia, and, 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 you know, uh, well, and, uh, and also anti-Semitism. Democrats have worked for almost a century to produce and maintain a strong middle class so people can reach their greatest potential and raise their families without constant economic anxiety. The Republican Party, no, they've been, you know, 
pushing policies of religious and racial separation and oligarchy. And, you know, their only consequential policy, I mean, literally the only serious major piece of legislation that was passed during the four years of the Trump administration was a $2 trillion tax cut for rich people and corporations that over 10 years is going to be $9 trillion. Oh, but we can't pass a $2.5 trillion bill that will expand Medicare. Oh, we can't afford to do that. I mean, you've got white supremacists roaming the streets with with weapons of war, terrorizing shoppers. This happened in Long Island a couple days ago. You had a white supremacist travel to El Paso and murder 22 people after writing, this attack is a response to the invasion, the Hispanic invasion of Texas, using language that Donald Trump had used repeatedly. Invasion. Tucker Carlson, it's the white replacement theory. Another white supremacist murdered nine black people at the Mother Emanuel Church in Charleston, South Carolina, while shouting white racist rhetoric. The list of unarmed black people murdered by police is so long, I couldn't list it here. It's got its own wiki page on Wikipedia. You know, like we were discussing greed yesterday. Greed is never going to go away. Racism is never going to go away. But both can be weakened through, well, racism specifically in this case, can be weakened through integration and education. It can be controlled by the force of law. And it can be removed from our public square by our nation agreeing to shame racists and white supremacists, people like Lauren Boebert. When we've tried these tools, they've been quite effective. Look at our military. Yes, they still have a ways to go. Yes, there are still problems, racial problems in our military. But they are light years ahead of much of the rest of America. The last thing we should ever have is a political party using race like this as a, as a weapon, as a political weapon. We have the opportunity to show the world that it is possible for people of different races and religions to work together and to live together in harmony and peace and make a better nation and a better world. But that's not going to happen as long as the GOP keeps exploiting racial and religious hatred for fundraising and naked political purposes. This is the Tom Hartman Program. We'll be right back. What are we going to do with, with the lockdown that might be coming if this Omicron is worse than we think? You know, yesterday I was ranting about how greed is, you know, one of the seven, seven deadly sins and something that needs to be called out. And we were talking about how uh, St. Thomas Aquinas, I guess calling him a saint, uh, maybe that's a Catholic thing. I'm not sure. He's, he's a Catholic saint, but you know, I'll, I'll call him a saint, even though I'm not a Catholic. In any case, you know, I was talking about how Thomas Aquinas said that uh, greed was actually, along with pride, greed and pride were the two primary sins, the two cardinal sins. He called them capital sins. The two sins from which everything else descended. And a number of people called in yesterday and said, you know, this or that, you know, different, you know, covetousness and theft and just a whole collection of other kind of secondary sins. We're all just dimensions of greed. I would say that racism is a dimension of greed. Racism is just, an, you know, it's like, oh, no, that should be mine. That shouldn't go to that person. And, and it's a lazy form of greed because you say, oh, it shouldn't go to that person because of the color of their skin, because I can obviously see what they look like. Arguably, it's a form of classism for lazy people. And, of course, you know, we should be, we should be condemning and calling out and trying to fight back against classism in the United States as well. But the question is, what do we do about it? And I think that this combination, and I realize it was just one sentence in my op-ed and in my rant just a minute ago, but I think it bears emphasizing. The way that we deal with racism is very much the way, like the way we deal with greed in our society, the way that we have to, is number one, you create laws to constrain it, and you enforce those laws. And to some extent, we've done that. You know, we've banned redlining, for example, although there's still de facto redlining going on, um, you know, just as one example. But anyhow, you, you use the force of law, number one. 
Number two, you use the force of shame. Public is, it, is the word opprobrium. I, I, it's one of those words that I've read all my life and never been sure exactly how to pronounce. Um, you know, but basically calling people out. What's happening right now to Lauren Boebert? Although she's pushing back, she's doubling down on her racism and her Islamophobia. Will it work for her? I mean, if it does, then the Republican Party has done their work of promoting racism in America very successfully. If it doesn't work for her, if, if she is voted out next year, or if she does have to back down, or if Republicans start essentially treating her like she's radioactive, which I, I think is very unlikely that the Republicans will do this. I mean, you know, Kevin McCarthy, the leader of the Republicans in the House, hasn't said, uh, has not condemned her. And Steve Scalise, the number two Republican in the House of Representatives, when he was running for Congress in Louisiana, he bragged that he was David Duke without the, without the baggage, was the exact phrase. I, I called it David Duke without the robes. So Steve Scalise isn't gonna call out her racism. But that's, these are the two things that, in principle, that I think we need to do. You, you have, as a society, you say, no, this is not us. And under law, you say, and by the way, no, you can't do that. You can't racially discriminate in housing or in employment or in health care. Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows firsthand how VR training platforms like ForgeFX can help meet the demand for skilled workers. Anywhere you go look, there's going to be a shortage of welders. VR training can help welding students learn the skills they need to begin and advance in their career. The beauty of virtual reality is it simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Explore more stories like Alex's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. Tom Harbin here with you. Okay, let's talk about plagues, pandemics. You'll recall a week or two ago, I went into a kind of long rant about how nobody knows exactly what's going to happen, but the different directions how, uh, th this virus might take in the course of mutation, how it might mutate. And what we appear to have seen over the years in, with other viruses. And I learned a lot of this back a decade or more ago reading Laura Garrett's book, uh, The Coming Plague, in which she basically predicted what's going on right now. And one of the things that I pointed out is that, you know, the, the next virus, the next mutation of the coronavirus, of this particular uh, COVID coronavirus, the next mutation may well be able to get around vaccines. It may be more deadly. It also might be less deadly. That that may well be what we have seen with the common cold, for example, which at one point in time might have been much more dangerous, but the less deadly version outcompeted the more deadly version. But you know, it's not. And 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 people say, well, you know, viruses don't like to be deadly because they then kill their hosts. Uh, yeah, but. You know, a 1% death rate, which is what we've got right now, or 2%, it's 3% in some parts of the world, but still, you know, a, a, a single-digit death rate with a virus is not enough to slow the virus down from spreading and mutating. When you get, like, like uh, you know, Ebola, which has a 60 or 70% death rate, then you've got a death rate that's enough to actually slow the spread of the virus. But, or make it harder for the virus to spread and replicate and mutate. But I, that's very much not, not the case with this. So we don't know yet. 
And there, there's at least one physician in South Africa who is saying it looks like this virus might be milder. There are others, however, who are saying we really don't know because South Africa and, 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 and also because uh, and, and also that, you know, uh, this physician in South Africa saying we don't know if it's going to, you know, how it's going to deal with the, the vaccines. And the reasons are twofold. Number one, he's saying it looks like it's not quite so severe, but South Africa is one of those countries that has a very large young population and a relatively small old population. And the old population that they do have was just largely decimated by the original COVID. And young people are getting seriously ill from Omicron. But, you know, we just don't know in the general population. And we, we will find out in the next couple of weeks. But this is, this is the shocking thing. This, this was in the Financial Times. Uh, Stéphane Boncel is the CEO of Moderna. And what he said to the Financial Times was, all the scientists I've talked to are like, this is not going to be good. Speaking of Omicron, he told the Financial Times there would be a, quote, material drop, end quote, in the effectiveness of current vaccines against Omicron. That's the bad news. Now, the good news is that the vaccine manufacturers are all saying, give us two months and we're all set. So the next lockdown, if there is one, and if there is, you know, whether it is by dictate, you know, government fiat, which I'm, I'm thinking is increasingly unlikely given, you know, how militant the Trump holes have become, or whether it's simply de facto, it's just, you know, rational people say, okay, that's it, I'm not leaving the house for a couple months. The next one's only gonna last a couple months in all probability until there's a new vaccine available, if that's what's needed. Are you ready? I'm getting there. I mean, we've learned so many good lessons from the past. I think that, you know, no matter how this plays out, worse, less, you know, easily evades the, va the vaccine, doesn't, kills people or, or less likely to kill people. However it plays out, I feel personally, just speaking for myself, I'm not representing any kind of scientific point of view here, but I feel like we have enough experience with this thing that we can take a deep breath and say, you know, okay, if I don't have, you know, if I'm not gonna go to a restaurant for the next couple of months, I can live with that. How about you? How might this play out in your community? And will it influence the mask holes? Will we see any change in their behavior? This is the Tom Hartman Program. Our book today on the Tom Hartman Book Club is uh, Nina Burley, by Nina Burley. The title is Virus, Vaccinations, the CDC, and the Hijacking of America's Response to the Pandemic. This is from Chapter 1, Smash the State. There are many ways to begin to tell the story of why more Americans died of COVID-19, the disease caused by SARS-CoV-2, than in any other nation on Earth. We can start at the Washington, D.C. hospital with doctors amputating the lower leg of the White House chief of security, a man who caught COVID in Donald Trump's mask-free domain. Or we could talk to the families of 46 veterans who died within days of each other in a Veterans Administration nursing home in Alabama. Or we could listen in on a therapy session with some of the New York City medics struggling with PTSD after helplessly watching some of tens of thousands of people die in a matter of weeks. Since this story involves mass death, religious zealots, and the worst case of government malpractice in the history of the United States, I'll choose the biblical opening. In the beginning, there was the state, and the ideologue said, let it be smashed, and so it was smashed. Dateline, Atlanta, March 6, Centers for Disease Control. Early days in the shall we say, crap show. Uh, cameras are rolling. The journalists are penned off like lab monkeys awaiting morsels of information about an increasingly confusing government response to an unprecedented crisis. A plague visits the planet. Not the long-expected brain-eating zombie plague, another one. 
a virus that starts out feeling like the common cold, then coagulates blood and makes lungs look like ground glass on x-rays. Starves people of oxygen, sometimes even before they notice. Americans are just starting to die. Infested cruise ships are stranded in ports around the world. No one has yet decided what to do or if they have to do anything. Nobody in this great edifice of American public health, the gold standard for the whole world, journalists will write again and again, is yet wearing a mask. The President of the United States is the MC, clad in his casual costume he wears for events slightly more important than golfing, but less serious than his official duties, including hustling foreign leaders and rousing the rabble at rallies. He zipped his White House bomber jacket, retails at $122 at the White House gift shop, presidential seal above the left breast, over his gut. The effect is convex, truly bomb-like, containing the protuberance. Below that, a pair of khakis, white dress shirt, red MAGA hat, brim cocked level, just above the raccoon white circles around his eyes. The set for this show is a real lab. A table is laden with dozens of very large hand-pumped sanitizer bottles. There's a shortage of this stuff around the country right now. One more small crazy fact that is freaking Americans out. But there's plenty of it here by the president. The president will gesture at the bottles and remind the assembled that he never liked to shake hands anyway and certainly doesn't press flesh as a politician. Something he is careful to add. Most politicians do, but which is one of the myriad things that sets him apart from the odious herd. The other three men are more formal, as befits their position, hosts of this auspicious public health event with the leader of the free world. They wear suit and ties. Two of them have advanced medical degrees. One is a lawyer and a political appointee. They stand beside a man who has spewed going on 16,000 lies to the American public through the biggest bullhorn on the planet. The sensation of his nearness affects them differently on a spectrum from self-conscious embarrassment to toady awe in the presence of greatness to barely veiled terror. Health and Human Services Secretary Alex Azar, trim, bearded, a lawyer by training with no medical experience other than as a big pharma executive, gazes up at his boss with the eyes of a Labrador at heel. Center for Disease Control Director Dr. Robert Redfield, whose White chin and side whiskers are trimmed in the fashion of a 19th century vicar, can barely contain the fulsome gratitude he will shortly pour on the red-hatted head. Well, I think I first, I want to thank you for your decisive leadership and helping us, you know, but public health first, he says. I also want to thank you for coming here today and, and sort of encouraging and bringing energy to the men and women that you see that work here every day to try to keep America safe. So I think that's the most important thing I want to say, sir. A man named Dr. Steve Monroe, colorless and quivering, stands by. He's the guy who this morning has drawn the short straw, or actually the Harry Carey knife, in explaining to the media just what the hell is going on with the strange, slow rollout of the CDC's COVID tests. In New York City, frontline nurses and doctors were about to be overwhelmed with a wave of people turning blue from lack of oxygen in their blood whose legs were mysteriously filling with clots and turning black. 20,000 people would die while doctors tried to understand what drugs or procedures might mitigate the strange constellation of COVID symptoms. Victims endured horrible final days connected to ventilators. Their blood gelled in their veins. Their organs failed one by one within hours. The book Virus by Nina Burley. You're listening to Tom Hartman. Welcome back. Tom Hartman here with you. Uh, one other, uh, with regard to the, you know, are you ready for the lockdown? One other data point for you. Uh, again, because it is too early for us to have any meaningful epidemiological information about the Omicron variant. It has not uh, spread widely enough among vaccinated populations for us to really know how effective the vaccines that are out there are against it. That said, what the companies that are manufacturing vaccines and manufacturing anti-viral uh, thing, you know, uh, treatments like the monoclonal antibodies, 
What they can do is they can test these, this virus, this new virus, and their products in a lab environment. Right? They can't. Yeah, I mean, they, they, they can't. They can't go out and and uh, count the number of people. Oh, you know, we have two hundred thousand people infected, and a hundred you know, thousand of them were vaccinated, a hundred thousand weren't. And here's the. We can't. We can't do that yet. That's gonna. That's gonna be probably the week before Christmas. We'll have meaningful data. But these lab tests are just literally today starting to come out. Today, it was reported in the Financial Times that the head of Moderna said he doesn't think that their, va their vaccine works as effectively against Omicron. And now this just also came out. This is on the Financial Times website. Went up three minutes ago, actually. The headline, early tests indicate Regeneron drug may be less effective against um, Omicron. Keep in mind, that's, this is the drug that uh, Ron DeSantis set up treatment centers all over Florida to treat people who refuse to get vaccinated but get COVID. Uh, if you get, you know, you've got to show up and they put a vein in your arm and they drip this stuff in for a half hour and it's a monoclonal antibody and it specifically helps your immune system or, or aids your immune system in attacking the, the SARS COVID-19 virus. Well, here's, this is uh, via Reuters on the Financial Times this morning. Early testing indicates that the mutations in the Omicron variant of coronavirus may hamper the ability of Regeneron's antibody drug to treat COVID-19, the company said this morning. This is an actual quote from the company, from a spokesperson for the company. Quote, the individual mutations present in the Omicron variant indicate that there may be reduced neutralization activity of both vaccine-induced and monoclonal antibody conveyed immunity. But, you know, again, they point out that they're using lab samples and modeling, and we just won't know until, you know, a few million people have been infected with this. We also won't know if it can successfully outcompete Delta, because Delta is not as endemic in South Africa, which is where this Omicron came from. The Delta is not as endemic in South Africa as it is in Europe and, and North America. So can it compete against Delta? We don't know. It's interesting. So Republican racism, what are you going to do with a lockdown? A lot to talk about. VR training platforms like the one developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International are helping surgeons train over and over before operating on real patients. As you practice each skill, the muscle memory starts to develop. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. Lisa in uh, Trevor, Wisconsin. Hey, Lisa, what's on your mind today? In talking about the division by the Republicans based on race or many other things, you know, political views, et cetera, and I think that you may have missed one key, what I believe to be one key factor, and that comes down to insecurity, a person's insecurity. I think that obviously Trump was a person who felt insecure, and we can see that by, you know, his need to try and prove himself better than everybody else unable to deal with challenges or surround himself by anybody that would challenge his opinions, et cetera, et cetera. I think this is a very dangerous thing. We've got people that themselves feel insecure and therefore need to tote around AK-47s. They want to be led by somebody like Trump. And I think that yesterday's conversation about wealth, I think that's a symptom of 
feeling insecure that you have this need to have so much wealth that it makes you feel better. Sexual conquests are another thing that, you know, if you're insecure that you need to have just power in general. So you need to feel that you are superior and that you can control other people. People that are secure don't feel challenged by having other people that have different beliefs, whether it's, you know, religion or political or whatever. And so I think this is a very dangerous thing, um, a very large societal issue. I don't know how we can solve it, but I believe our whole society has really gone down the drain. Uh, our values are so skewed as far as this rampant consumerism, which is just going to destroy this entire globe, basically. I think it's a brilliant analysis, Lisa. Uh, an absolutely brilliant analysis. And the thing that I would add to it is that there are two kinds of insecurity, uh, to use your word. There's, uh, I, you know, what you could call exogenous insecurity, insecurity caused by circumstances external to you, things you have no control over. And then there's endogenous insecurity, internal insecurity that you are essentially that you grow up with, uh, probably largely uh, the result of the way that you were parented or the experiences of your childhood. And, you know, so, for example, Trump had that endogenous, that inner insecurity that was the result of having a psychopath as a father and a, and a, and a, and a mother who was completely disinterested in him and, and literally went years without seeing him. Um, so, you know, he was very wounded by that. He was internally insecure. But the exogenous insecurity, the external insecurity is the one that, I, that we could do something about. You can't do much about internal insecurity like, you know, the way that Trump grew up. Obviously, you try to support families and things like that, but he had, you know, more money than God, you know, his, his father anyway, is very, very wealthy. And, uh, you know, it didn't help. But the external insecurity is, and, and there's been just no shortage of studies showing this, that when people are experiencing economic insecurity as a consequence of there being a lack of good paying jobs, um, as a consequence of an economic depression or an economic recession, um, they tend to become more conservative is the word that's usually used in the literature. And, and what that means is more resistant to change and more wary of people unlike them and, and you know, viewing others as threats. They become you know, more reactive. There's more of a flight or flight response. And the way that you solve that is by making sure that everybody has a decent job and they can provide for their families and, 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 and kids have an opportunity to go to school. And I mean, you know, b basically creating a world that works. And, and I think that, you know, this is, this is like the big challenge of our time is, is creating that, that social safety net. The, the huge irony here is that Reaganism, the 40 years of Reaganism, which has taken our middle class from being 65% of us down to around 45% of us now, that that Reaganism, that neoliberalism, is creating that insecurity that you're talking about, Lisa, particularly among these white men who are strutting around with, with you know, uh, prosthetic penises yep. and, and whatnot, yep. um, because, it, because it has reduced their ability to be the, the breadwinner. It has reduced their ability to even, you know, adequately by their own standards or by the standards of society provide for their families. Their home does not look as nice as the homes they see on TV. They can't provide for that. And so what do they do? They, 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 you know, there must be somebody responsible for this. Well, it couldn't be the Republicans or the billionaires. They're on our side, right? It must be those mm -hmm. black people or those Muslims or whatever. So. Yep, absolutely. And I think some of this is intentional by the Republicans. You know, the old divide and conquer strategy, yep. whether it comes down to, you know, economical insecurity or whether it comes down to not wanting to teach people or have people be able to teach uh, to think critically because that challenges them and it makes people question what is being done by leadership and obviously they, they don't want that. So thank you very much. Yeah, spot on. Lisa, thank you very much for the call. John in Austin, Texas. Hey, John, what's up? Hey, well, I'm responding to uh, uh, your call for what, what, what do we think about this new virus and what effect it'll have on yeah. various parts of the population. And um, I'm in the middle of Texas, and I actually live in a small town outside of Austin, which is very, uh, very red. And um, I, personally, I don't think it's going to um, affect the, the right side of the dial at all. Mm -hmm. I think, uh, if anything, they'll just they'll have another club to hit uh, the left over, you know, hit over the head of the left, mm -hmm. as if the left had anything to do with this. Right. But they'll they'll make it they'll make it look like it like Biden did it or whatever. Mm -hmm. 
Mm-hmm. And so and the, the ones that I know are extremely stubborn. They're just, it's all baked in, as they say, and uh, they're not going to change. Well, and they'll probably just pull a big, I told you so. Yeah, well, but here's that, the, here's the headline, if, if, if I can, real quick, John, and then you can react to this. Uh, this is the headline on the American Spectator today, you know, one of the big right-wing websites. Dems eagerly await the Omicron variant. They need a pretext to pass the Freedom to Vote Act, complete with nationwide mail-in voting. Hey, there you go. Excuse me. That's exactly what I mean. And this is just, of course, this is this is such an talk about telegraphing your moves. But anyway, this is, there's nothing to be done about these people. This is what I've learned living in Texas. There's nothing to be done about these people. You can you can talk till you're blue in the face, and uh, only dire circumstances changes these people. And apparently, this is not dire enough for them. And God help us. Yeah. But I also wanted to to in, inject a. Um, uh, some positivity here, and, and and that is that most people, the the, the majority of people, Americans, uh, have their chops ready to do this. They 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 know how to deal with this now, mm-hmm. and so does the scientific community. And they're 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 not shackled anymore, right. so they can get on. Uh, uh, they can look at this this uh, virus, this new variant and cook up uh, another, uh, you know, they've got a template already, so they can cook up another uh, vaccine or at least tweak the vaccines that are there now that would include it. And meantime, people know how to behave in, in, a, in a pandemic. They've been doing it for two years. And so it yeah. shouldn't really, I, th- I, I feel a little bit more positive about, uh, about it because people I don't think are going to panic about this. Uh, provided that the media does not gin up a panic. Yeah, I'm, I'm with you, John. And, and I don't think the, the media, uh, frankly, is ginning up a panic. I think they're they're saying, hey, look, it's, something real is happening here. But um, so far, so good. John, well, I, I am not... to hear that. Yeah, I am not panicked either for the same reasons that you said, and you said them so well. John, I got to run, but thank you for the call. Thanks thanks for listening to us on Sirius Thank you, sir. Yep. Speaking the truth to multinational corporations, we'd really rather you didn't know all about you're listening to Tom Hartman. Visit TomHartman.com for audio and video archives. Back with more of your thoughts on race in politics and Omicron in pandemics. Let's see here. Patrick in East Lansing. Hey, Patrick, what's on your mind today? I wanted to compliment you on your rant yesterday about greed causing the failure to develop a global vaccine, and then we get the Omicron virus. And I wanted to ask you if you've looked closely at the way in which our greed is really harming us. In other words, it's not really enlightened greed. And I just want to call your attention to the proposal that the U.S. make an unlimited number of Moderna vaccines for the whole world which we could do for $32 billion, and it's been well discussed, and we hold the legal patent rights to do that. And Moderna, in its agreement, has had to acknowledge that the U.S. could have simply began manufacturing all over the world by transferring that technology. And Adam Tooze picked this up in the New York Times, and he was relying on the IMF report, which said that if we were to do that, we could get the rest of the world to help us to pay for it, and we'd be voluntarily setting up manufacturing around the world, it would it would cost, according to the IMF, fifty billion because you've got to add in eighteen billion to basically distribute the vaccines and set up these manufacturing sites. But we would get, according to the IMF, a nine trillion dollar increase in additional global economic output. So what Adam Tu said in the New York Times, it was uh, September first. I urge anyone to read it, is that the economic payoff for investing in that global vaccine is one hundred and eighty to one. Now, I have my own explanation of exactly what's going on, but I wondered if you've really dived into it to understand the economic insanity of the EU and China and the United States embracing economic nationalism instead of a global solution, because this really doesn't bode well for climate change policy, as Adam Tooze said, and the pandemics like our trial run, and it shows because of these international financial arrangements, two of which relate to this issue of global vaccine failure, um, we're not going to succeed at climate change solutions. So I just wondered if you'd looked into that. And I, I wanted I sh- to share. My- I share your concerns, and I'm and I am familiar with this. You know, Joe Biden in May of this year called for the World Trade Organization to put into place what they call the tri- the Trips waiver, a waiver on intellectual property rights, specifically for these vaccines, and 
the way that that waiver is written, the, and the proposal is there with the World Trade Organization, but it's being, as you point out, it's now endorsed by the United States, but it is opposed by the EU. Um, and, uh, you know, for reasons I can't figure out, uh, you know, I think it have to do with vaccine nationalism or whatever. But, but basically, all of these countries have the ability to manufacture vaccines. They manufacture vaccines in, in South Africa. They manufacture vaccines in, in multiple South American countries, um, probably the majority of them. They, they manufacture their own local vaccines for things like measles and chickenpox and smallpox and tetanus and all kinds of things. And, and so the existing vaccine manufacturing facilities around the world could literally uh, overnight begin manufacturing, well, not literally overnight, but you know, within a week or two, begin manufacturing COVID vaccines if they had this waiver. And that would be the, the most rapid way to happen, have it happen. And the way the waiver is written at the WTO, those companies in those countries would pay a small fee to Moderna or Pfizer or whoever's vaccine they're copying. So these companies would not lose money. They just wouldn't make as much money as if they sold it themselves. And, and, and it would be much more efficient to be having it manufactured all around the world than try to ship it all out of the United States. It would be you know, the biggest FedEx thing in, in history. But I'm with you, Patrick. I, I, I think this is, this is uh, just an, an abomination. I got to run, but thank you for the call. By the way, I opened the show with uh, the Trump death toll. We have passed 800,000 dead in the United States today. As of this moment, it's 801,486 dead Americans. And uh, you can uh, find that uh, continuously updated over at trumpdeathtoll.org. Be sure to go to .org. And it's a website that I put up. It's brought to you by the Hartman Report. And uh, we're pulling the information from, uh, you know, disease.sh. This is the Open Disease Data API. And uh, it's, you know, this is, this is, you know, international data. Uh, you know, I believe it's provided by the United Nations. But in any case, the, the death toll in the United States as of today, 801,000. TrumpDeathToll.org is the website. So picking up your phone calls. Chris in Littleton, Colorado. Hey, hey, Chris, what's up? Yeah, yeah hi, Tom. Um, in two years, the uh, virus vaccines have produced the biggest profits of any medicine in history for big pharma. And the virus knows no borders. World leaders have a choice. Suspend patents and allow every country in the world access to vaccines. Which and Biden then, has called they, for, by the way. Or what they're doing now is vaccinating the rich half of the world and not vaccinating the poor half. Yep. And that allows millions of people to die. And um, it'll allow the virus to circulate around the world with more and more variants. Yep. Yep. This is called, these are called TRIPS waivers, these intellectual property waivers. This proposal that the United States has endorsed. Uh, it took until May for us to get around to it, but the, and certainly the Trump administration didn't want to do this, but we have endorsed this, this idea that countries like South Africa, Peru, Argentina, I mean, there's countries all over the world that, that are you know, emerging or developing democracies that already have vaccine manufacturing capabilities. They make, they make smallpox vaccines for their local citizens. They make tetanus vaccines. They make you know, measles vaccines. They could be making these COVID vaccines if they were given the formula and given the legal right to do it. But the World Trade Organization and the patent laws around the world prevent the, this from happening. And these TRIPS waivers would allow these countries to manufacture these vaccines and pay a very small fee to the companies that develop the vaccines. By the way, most of them, Pfizer's the exception, but the other ones were developed with federal money, with government money. The Moderna one was developed with money from the United States government. Um, they would pay a small fee to these companies so they, so they don't lose money on this. They just lose an opportunity to make more money by selling it, it at a very expensive rate, uh, which they couldn't do anyway because people don't have, you know, people in many of these countries of the world don't have the money to buy them. So, yeah, I am, I am totally with you, and I think you nailed it, Chris. Thank you very much for the call.
Ready to elevate your home? Picture this. Central heating, a cozy fireplace, or your dream walk-in closet. Build a backyard oasis, go green with solar panels, or start a business. It's all possible with Figure's home equity line of credit. Unlock up to $400,000. Apply online in five minutes. Funding in as little as five days. Head to figure.com and transform your home. Figure Lending LLC, DBA Figure, Equal Opportunity Lender, NMLS 1717824. Terms and conditions apply. Visit figure.com for more information. For licensing information, go to www.nmlsconsumeraccess.org. Dean Obadala, the host of the Dean Obadala Show, weekdays 3 to 6 p.m. on Sirius XM Progress Radio Channel 127. He's also columnist with The Daily Beast, and a lot of his stuff gets picked up over on MSNBC's website as well, including his most recent piece, the GOP's long embrace of anti-Muslim hate. Dean, welcome back to the program. Thanks, Tom. You're the dean of radio. I That's just my name. So I'm not the, it's not, I'm not the dean of radio. My website is deanofradio.com. And by the way, you just say that Tom's going to be on my show tomorrow night. So this is sort of a cross-promotion, like there you home go. and home series or something along those lines. So yep. thanks for having me on, Tom. It's always great to chat with you. Back, back at you, Dean. Thanks for dropping by. So, so lay out this scenario for you, for us. Uh, how is Lauren Boebert's um, making jokes about Ilhan Omar, uh, the Somali refugee Muslim, a black uh, American member of Congress from Minnesota? How is Lauren Boebert, the you know the the white gun nut from Colorado, making these jokes? Unique. What is what is different? What is, what how you know how how does this fall outside? the realm of what we have traditionally considered normal and even beyond the pale for what we consider crazy in, in the Republican world these days. It doesn't. I mean, Lauren Boebert is not an outlier. She is the manifestation of today's GOP. She is. She will raise money off this. She's going to get more popular among the Republican rank and file. And I say that because, first of all, it wasn't just this joke by Boebert. She, as you probably know, has been for months smearing Congressman Omar saying in writing, in her tweets, calling her a terrorist sympathizer, saying she's a spokesperson for Hamas, smearing Congressman Rashida Tlaib, the only other female Muslim member of Congress, saying she's also part of the jihad squad simply because she's Muslim. But you've got to take a step back, as I know in my article. Anti-Muslim bigotry became weaponized by the Republican Party beginning in the 2012 presidential election. And it was done there by Newt Gingrich and Herman Cain, saying Muslims want to impose Sharia law. Like, we want to post Islamic law, which is laughable. They were just projecting, because we're seeing what they're doing right now in, in Texas, in the case tomorrow, in, before the Supreme Court in Mississippi, imposing their extreme religious beliefs as a law of the land and oppressing women. But the point is, since 2012, they've been demonizing Muslims. That's part of their, po- part of their platform, essentially. 2016, Trump took it to new heights with saying things like, Islam hates us, saying Muslims, we knew where the terrorists were, and we weren't turning them in, and, of course, calling for a complete shutdown on Muslims. And he made Congressman Omar a very frequent target of his attacks because she's black, she's an immigrant, she's Muslim, and she's a woman. Don't forget, Congressman Omar is the woman who Trump's crowd in a North Carolina rally chanted, send her back. The idea of sending a black woman back to Africa made the base so happy. And Trump is suggesting her and other women of color should go back to their home countries, despite that the others were born here. It didn't matter to them. They were, they're, they're of color. They're not Americans. So look. What Bobart did, completely mainstream GOP bigotry. That's where the party is. I just hope Democrats use this in 2022 to define the GOP and ask Americans, do you want these people running the House of Representatives and showing Gozar, Bobart, Marjorie Taylor Greene, Madison Cawthorn, and the fact that Republicans refuse to denounce it, which in my view means they approve of it, they're complicit with it. And it works for them. I mean, you know, the, does, yeah. generally speaking, politicians do things because they work. They don't do things because they're irrational and, and just bouncing off the walls. And, and, you know, there's a large white majority in the United States. Um, it, we have a, a rather sordid past with regard to, uh, to say the very least, with regard to the largest genocide in the history of the world, the, the genocide of Native Americans, with the, the essentially Holocaust of, of African Americans for, you know, 400 years. Uh, slavery and Jim Crow and and you know that continues to this day in many ways, and and the 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 thing that I'm having trouble with and and um, just don't know what to do other than just calling it out, but mm-hmm. is that there are so many white people in this country 
who are voting race first. You know, it's it's like race above all else. There, it's it's yep. um, you know the last time a Democrat won the White House with the with the majority white vote was Lyndon Johnson in 1964. I yes, mean, you know, it, it, it's go true. Ahead. And there was a study. Uh, early, about 2015, 2016, the New York Times had a great article about white identity politics. And they tracked it. And they showed that polling in the mid-2000s, they asked white people, how important is your race in terms of voting? At that time, at least there was no admission of it. It was statistically insignificant. It was almost nothing. Flash forward 2015, a third of white Americans, a third of, of all white Americans, said their race was important to them in how they voted. White identity politics is now in full force on the GOP side. And I think it's because demographic change is real. And there's a sense of tribalism based on race now. And that it's because of Trump, but not just Trump. Republicans have pitted white people against black and brown and immigrants over and over and over again. And it's really taken hold. So we're dealing with a GOP party that is, I think, at this point, proudly white nationalists. They are team white. And they want all white people who view everyone of color as a risk or a threat in the zero-sum game scenario, to join them. You know, but don't forget, over 40% of white people did vote for Joe Biden in, overall, men and women combined. So it's not like they're not getting all white people, but they are getting a majority of white people, of men more solidly, and then women as well. And we have to deal with this. And calling it out for the bigotry it is is something I think important for, even if it won't move them, it, I hope we'll get people on our side more worked up to vote. Because well, as we know, it's turnout in a midterm election. We need to give people our own form of red meat, not based on lies and bigotry, but based on the truth and making clear, here are the stakes. You've got a GOP. Well, that's and a I think there's a larger issue here, movement. Dean, and that is that in a country, a country that has a multitude of races and religions, and it, but is held together by the common belief in democracy, which was at least the ideal of the founding of this country, um, and... I would say every generation we've inched a little closer to that ideal. Um, that you know, we we were the first country in the world that was, arguably, again, I you know, I I, I know all the cynical responses to this, but nonetheless, sure. we were the first country in the history of the world that declared that we were based on an idea and not on our DNA. You know, and and mm -hmm. in, increasingly, you're seeing democracies, you know, taking that on. You know, that I'm I'm British. Not because um, you know I'm white, but because I I believe in the ideals of this country. Uh, I'm American, not, not because I'm uh, white, but because or I mean, I, arguably the only people who could actually mm -hmm. call themselves Americans are Native Americans or or Hispanics. But um, this idea of a, a pluralistic society, uh, it, we haven't seriously talked about this in in a long time in the United States. And yet, on the other hand, you've got the the white nationalists out there just getting enormous amounts of publicity, promoting their ideas, promoting their hate right. on their own channels, on right-wing talk radio, on, you know, uh, it, it just, and, and it's tearing this country apart. It's just tearing this country apart. We are at some point going to have to decide, do we want democracy or not? Because we're yep. not gonna change the racial composition of the United States. And, and uh, you know, I, I think Texas is the real bellwether in this. Texas is no longer a majority white state. And yet, no. all the levers of power, virtually all the levers, levers of power in that, in that state are controlled by mostly white people. There's a smattering of right. Hispanics, but increasingly, and, and now we've got you know, several hundred Spanish language right-wing radio stations, talk radio stations mm -hmm. all across the country, and they're popping up in Texas like weeds, and you know, it's, it's shifting the Hispanic population in that direction too. Well, Tom, to your point about Texas, just briefly, you know, they got two additional congressional seats because of increased population. Well, what the, the, the state is only 39% white right now. It's almost parity with the Hispanic communities right about there. These two new seats they design are both white majority districts. You know how hard it is in a state that's only 39% white to, find, to create two new white majority districts? Yeah. That takes surgical precision, and that's what they're doing. Yeah, it, it is a contest between democracy, a pluralistic society, and going to what they want, which is a, a white nationalist. Christian I think you could based. call it ethnocracy. Perhaps, and, and certainly religion's a part of it. I mean, the case yeah. tomorrow before the Supreme Court on the Mississippi law banning abortion 15 weeks, including rape and incest. This is all based on religion. This is that's what they want. They want to impose their religious beliefs on the rest of us. And I keep telling people, there's only 
two results when you're dealing with these kind of fascist movements. It's either you let them rule you or you stand up and fight them and hopefully win. And I don't mean military battle. I mean politically here. And we have to get more engaged in 2022. We can win if we come out in. We don't need the complete same turnout of 2020. We need a really good turnout. We can win. We can hold the House. We can take a Senate seat or two. It's up to our base. Can we get our people out? And I'm hoping they see the stakes that we see right here. It's not a normal election, not normal times. It really is the the question of going forward as a nation, as a democracy, or this autocratic movement headed by a guy named Donald Trump or another white nationalist, the future. Right, and there's no shortage of them. I mean, you know, they're, they're standing no. in line over on the Republican side, and, and it's... it's yeah. uh, it's a, it's, a, it's a very, very dangerous time for America because uh, you can't have an ethno-state and a democracy, uh, at least a highly functioning democracy at the same time, in, in, in my opinion. I mean, you know, it's, um, I don't know. Anyhow, Dean, thanks, thanks a lot for the for the. Thanks, uh, for I'm talking tomorrow on my show, my friend. Thanks yeah. for being on. I appreciate I'm it. Thanks for being on to tomorrow. It. Yeah, okay. Thanks, we'll talk to you soon. Dean Obadala, the great Dean Obadala, deanofradio.com is his website. You can hear him on SiriusXM Radio 127, channel 127, 6 to 9 p.m. Eastern, Monday through Fridays. Dean Obadala is his Twitter handle as well. Special thanks to Louise Hartman, Sean Taylor, Nate Atwell, Jamie Holly, Joyce the Hammer Nance, Nigel Peacock, Sue Nethercutt, Patrick Hoyt, Geraldine Halbert, Ron Hartenbaum, Chase Spross, Nicholas Miller, Pat Sweeney, Jabberwocky, Jay LeBlanc, Connor Arroyo, and Carne Verde. All the folks who work on this program. And thank you to you for uh, participating with our program and spreading the good word and supporting our sponsors and our stations. Get out there, get active, tag your it. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com.